I am a big believer in not dismissing what you're interested in. If somebody sees my work and they want to buy a strobe and they want to buy an umbrella and they want to go grow flowers or pick flowers, and they want to do, then do it. Like, I am not a person who believes in getting in the way of somebody else's interest at all because it may be your calling. And I think it's sad to dismiss it if it's something that you really should be doing. Hello and welcome to the Luma University podcast. I'm your host, Jean, and this episode is incredibly special to me. Not only is it the first episode that I've interviewed somebody, but it's the very first time that I've had the opportunity to talk to somebody that I've looked up to for a very long time, and her name is Caroline Jensen. If you didn't know, Caroline is a incredible botanical photographer and prairie conservationist who lives in Minnesota, and her work really stands out from the crowd in a painterly style that is very simple yet also beautiful. She's a Sony artisan and a Sony Alpha female member and just has so much wisdom to offer, not only on the creative side of her work, which we get into, but also in the work-life balance side of her life and her faith and how much that has impacted her and her career. She's incredibly humble. I really don't think there's much sweeter person in the world that you could talk to. So I'm incredibly privileged to share with you this amazing conversation that we had. I hope you enjoy it and are inspired just as much as I am. So Caroline, thank you so much for saying yes to joining my podcast. This is actually insane for me. I've been a a big fan of your work for a long time, but if you could just introduce yourself, uh, let folks know and basically let me know a bit about your history. I haven't done a huge deep dive because I just, I want to get to know you myself as well. So um, if you could just give us a little bit of background about yourself, kind of what you've done and how you got here today, I think that'd be a great way to kick off this podcast. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, So about photography, that was something I was super interested in my whole life. And I was in high school and this is dating myself. I'm old enough to be a grandma for sure. My my oldest child is going to be 26. (laughs) Anyway, uh, back in high school, I wanted to be a photographer, but it was not something that I could do because uh, I had to buy film. I had to buy like 200 rolls of film in order to take the film class. And it just wasn't something that my family could swing. I was going to a private school, tuition was high, and that was just off the table. So it was fast forward to when I had a flock of little kids. I had four kids and you know, under 10. And I was like begging my husband for a better camera. I had a Canon Digital Elf that had 1.2 megapixels. Yeah, the 0.2 I'm sure is super important. And I was trying to, I was trying to shoot photos on manual with this teeny tiny little camera. This was about 2007. And I just was miserable. And so my husband sold a motorcycle that he had and loved and bought me, or just basically he handed me four grand and said, here, buy a camera, buy a lens, buy Photoshop, which at the time was, you know, like $800. And he said, go ahead and learn, you know, I want you to do this because I know how much you want it. And that was the beginning of it. And I just kept barreling forward. I was voracious at learning. And it's so funny because I used all of, do you know, uh, Matt, Kleskowski, Matt K. He did. So back in the day, he had tons of Photoshop books and Lightroom books. Like when Photoshop was fairly new and Lightroom was super new, he had a lot of books and he's a Sony artisan now. And I love him and we talk all the time. Uh, But it was kind of, you know, I was completely fangirling in the beginning because it was all of his books that taught me photography. Uh, So anyway, 
fast forward to about 2010, I was uh, shooting with a group of kind of photo mom type people, and I ended up being a, an instructor for their organization. And it was at that point that I was, you know, teaching in person. It was Salt Lake City, and somebody in my class uh, had a Sony camera around their neck, and uh, it happened to be the person in charge of the Sony Arson team at Sony. And I said, "Hey, I have that camera," and she's like, "Yeah, I know." <laughs> anyway, she had come out to t to take my classes, and that is kind of how I got connected with Sony. She she saw a picture that I had in a magazine. It was a full page spread and it had the EXIF data and it was one of their first Sony mirrorless cameras back in 2013. And so that is how I got connected with them. They saw the picture, saw the EXIF data, hunted me down. It was kind of a fairy tale story as far as photography goes. Uh, but it was a second career for me. You know, I had been homeschooling kids for Many years by that point, uh, my husband had been active duty after 9-11 for 12 years. We were uh, constantly in a state of transition, moving every five minutes. Literally, we moved 17 times in, in 10 years uh, after 9-11. And so it was it, there, there wasn't time for me to do anything else. As soon as that sort of calmed down, that's when photography picked up. And that was sort of my second full time. I, you know, I didn't get paid to teach my kids, but moving and teaching four kids full-time was was all I could handle. So yeah, and so that's where I am today. And now I have my own little community. Uh, I don't push it a lot. I don't advertise things. It's just kind of this cozy little place that people who want to learn from me can find me <laughs> and get free information and, and paid classes and, and things like that. And yeah, I continue to work with Sony uh, to this day so far. <laughs> <And that's laughs> so about. far. Wow. That's so cool. So you touched on a lot of things that I'm very interested yeah. about. And I think we have a lot in common as far as kind of our lifestyle, maybe in a little bit about our background. I live in Southeast Wyoming, which is on the plains and that's where I was born and raised. And so to me, it was, it's just kind of home, you know, it's kind of everything mm -hmm. I've known, but I actually don't know a lot about prairie conservation, which I know is something that you're kind of into. And so I was mm -hmm. hoping maybe I could pick your brain about that. What is prairie conservation? What is your role and what made you passionate about it? Because I grew up with the area and kind of climate, but I, I don't understand it. Right. Well, so as a photographer, I kind of have that philosophy of bloom where you're planted, right? And I wasn't a big traveling photographer, but I didn't have beautiful landscapes or so I thought. It was, you know, you see the people going to all the mountains and the oceans and traveling. I couldn't do that. And so I would look out on the prairie and I would think, there's got to be something beautiful here. It just looks like grass and sky. It doesn't look like much. And so that's when I started to pivot into the intimate landscape and macro photography. And I started to punch in closer and look deeper. And I saw so much beauty. And then through that, my husband walked in one day about 10 years ago and said, do you want to get into prairie conservation? I said, huh? <laughs> what? And he's like, well, I have this opportunity. We can take uh, 80 acres of our farmland and put it into prairie conservation where we will spend tens of thousands of dollars to intercede it with native prairie plants and we will leave it alone and we're going to maintain it, meaning you have to go in and get weedy species out by hand. Uh, and it's a lot of maintenance. We burn it all off, um, which is a part of the prairie uh, ecosystem. It, there are many seeds that must 
and get burned in order to germinate. So that's an interesting thing to learn. Anyway, I just became super passionate about it. And we continue to, to work with the program to this day and continue to add more land to the program. And then I just uh, ended up kind of through my love of prairie conservation, connecting with another, uh, not a photographer, a flower farmer who also grows a lot of native species. And so now I'm working with him on a book about sunflowers, uh, which is what he did as his day job for 30 years. So yeah, uh, prairie is just super amazing to me. It's a really interesting ecosystem that is not flashy. Like you have to work a little bit harder to see the, the nuances of what's happening unlike say the mountains that are just majestic, but I felt like it needed some attention <laughs> and that's, that's where I am. So I, I continue to forge forward with that. Yeah. That's, that's actually really cool to hear. Cause I, as a studio photographer, I think one of the reasons that I don't get out as much as I used to for landscapes is because of that flat landscape and that kind of just, oh, it's just grass and there's the sky. But when something that's kind of struck me just recently, I think this year is what if, our views are unique to a lot of people. And what if they are pretty? Because my wife was born and raised in California and she mm -hmm. lived in the Valley. And when we moved out here for the first time, she looked up at this at the sky and is just like, wow, I can see everywhere. I can mm -hmm. see 10 mm -hmm. miles in one direction. And it's just so beautiful. I think there might be more beauty there than a lot of people realize. Um, what do you think about that? Would you agree that maybe actually we do have some really hidden gems within the landscapes of this type of topography? I have the same dynamic with my husband, actually. I grew up in Wisconsin in the woods. And so when I married him and moved to the prairie, I was like, this is so open. I feel naked, like it's so exposed. I was used to running into a hill or a tree or, you know, there was never like this vast horizon like you get here. And it was through his eyes that I started to appreciate it. You know, like just yesterday, there's this thing called the bowl effect where sometimes the weather is such that the horizon actually seems like it's rising. And he's like, you got to get in the car and go see it because it looks like there's a mountain range on the horizon. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I did. And it looked like that. But it's like you have to see it through the, the view of someone's eyes who really appreciates it. And that's what I hope to bring to people that they won't just drive by on Interstate 90 all the way across South Dakota and <laughs> Wyoming and, you know, Montana and be like, there's nothing here. I want them to see that there's something here. And yeah. there's actually more diverse species on the prairie than there is almost anywhere else. And everything is so hardy and so weather resistant because, you know, the weather's terrible. <laughs> so it's just the resiliency of, of it all is, is quite the story to tell. And I, I think that it encourages people to to think about plants differently. Yeah. That's a really interesting way to put it. Cause I, I'm, I don't really know a whole lot about the outdoors and species. My mom, actually, she works at, in the Wyoming weed and pest control sector mm -hmm. and she knows a lot about it and has learned a lot about it. And it's been fascinating to kind of get her input and how all that works. But at the same time, you don't really see even out here, living in it, I don't see a whole lot of species. We have antelope, we've got coyotes, you know, we've got some, um, some really beautiful things, but we're pretty far from the mountains. We're about 35, 40 miles from the base of the mountains. And so all the more exotic creatures are kind of far away, but it's interesting to know that, you know, 
how many field mice are in the fields and how many critters we don't see. Um, you know, I don't even know the most about it, but would you say that like, have you explored that at all? Oh, like how much yes. do you know about the wildlife side of things? Cause I don't More know. More in insects it. probably. More in insects okay. um, because uh, one of the things I've done a couple times now is I've received a grant from the state of Minnesota to plant native pollinators, which specifically harbor uh, nesting pollinator insects or that helps them winter over, uh, you know, there's certain stems that things nest in and stay you know, a lot or they, you know, through the winter. And the really important parts of the ecosystem that get destroyed when people mow it down unknowingly. And so I've learned a lot about the, the, the native pollinators. You think of honeybees as being a major contributor to pollinating, but there are thousands of little insects that, that specifically pollinate certain things. And then also the creatures. I mean, <laughs> I was out with my dog one day in, in the in the field photographing, and I heard this rustle, 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 and I thought it was my dog Belle. And I'm like, Belle, be quiet, stop! You know, she was scaring all the birds away. Turned out it was this huge, huge. Oh, what is it? Not a. It's like a. Not. A, I want to say Wolverine, but that's not what it is. Oh, it's gonna badger. get me. I'll have, what's that? A badger. Badger. That's it. Uh, yes, a badger. Okay. And oh <laughs> my! Um, and I was like, ooh. Like, like they're, they're, they're mean, like they're, they're yeah. mean, mean, like they this can isn't really the UK. Yeah. This isn't the United Kingdom badgers, the little, little black guys. These ones are vicious and nasty teeth. Just so you know, they're, they more resemble Wolverines, but yes, continue. I think I scared it because I thought it was my dog. So I looked around, I said, stop it Belle. And the thing just kind of looked at me and then it kind of backed away. Uh, not that I screamed, I screamed at my dog or anything, but I was just, you know, she kept scaring away all the birds and I wanted her to go back to the house. I kept telling her to go back to the house, go see dad. And uh, anyway, uh, the, yeah, it was a badger. So there were a lot of different things. We don't have a lot of predators. We have coyotes. We have, you know, deer, of course, which are definitely not on the predator side. Uh, they don't care about you. Um, we have, we don't really have wolves, um, just mostly coyotes. So we don't have a lot of things to be afraid of here. We don't have bears or wildcats or anything. We're too, we're too far south for that. Um, but I did grow up in spending time really far north by Canada, lots of bears. <laughs> so I'm always happy that I can take a walk around here and not have to have bear spray or worry about, you know, something that can be really scary. Uh, but there are so many creatures, so many, just, just the little rodents, there's 800 of them and the owls. And so, you know, birding is crazy here. If you like birds, uh, we have lots of, you know, things like pheasants, which aren't native, but kind of are now. Um, yeah. So much, <laughs> so much. To gotcha. see. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. One thing I've noticed because I, you know, I grew up here, like I mentioned, but my whole adult life was spent in Los Angeles and then moving back here in 2020, I feel like I've had to reacclimate myself. And what I've learned at least in my area is some of the most beautiful places are just, just off the beaten path, but you don't see them because the landscape is so flat until you're there. And so it's like a lot of best kept secrets around here, but something that's difficult for photographers here is that a huge amount of the land, a vast majority is, is privately owned. And the good uh, thing is we have a small enough community that we can, you know, probably get in touch with those people with one or two phone calls and get permission. But at the same yeah. time, there are places out here that I will never be able to see that are probably the most beautiful places in Wyoming because they're private. So I don't know if you've experienced that up there, but there's just like so much private land here. We're kind of flyover country. Nobody really comes here on purpose. <laughs> 
(laughs) You know, if something isn't off of Interstate 90, they're not going to know about it. You know, if you're not on a main thoroughfare, you're not going to know about it. Uh, And really, my husband, like in our current area, like probably the whole southwest of Minnesota, my husband knows everyone, it seems like. And so if there's something significant, he probably knows who to ask. And, you know, people are pretty... Uh, relaxed about letting people photograph on their property. You know, I've never had anybody say no. Uh, I, I like to photograph birds by the water and I'll be like, who, who, who has the access to this pond? Oh, I'll go ask, he says. So, you know, it's, it's pretty easy. We don't live in, like, if you live by the, you know, Jackson Hole or if you're out in, you know, a really, really beautiful area, then it's probably people are a little bit more tight fisted about letting people wander onto their property because that could get to be a a problem (laughs) i would imagine yeah yeah it can be and and the interesting thing about this lifestyle where i live is that people don't really like change they're very much relaxed and in their own kind of thing but at the same time when it comes to photography there's very little restrictions because no one out here is doing it and so the government at least doesn't have you you know have any permits i called the local police station and asked if i could fly the drone around town they're like sure just be smart about it so like there's a lot of benefits to it but at the same time it's like you you want to respect the place that you're in and be understanding of the people who are there currently and before you and all that. And I think that photography is one of those things that can break the mold a little bit, but not so much to where it's like invasive to people's land. Yeah. Like a lot of folks don't like drones flying around, which I completely understand. But at the same time, you know, with photography itself, I think as long as you approach people respectfully, you can get pretty much anywhere, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> I totally agree. Yeah. People are mostly curious about what you're doing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They want to make sure that you're cool. Yeah. As soon as they can see you face to face and talk with you, usually everything's fine. But if it's like a random drone above their house, you know, they're grabbing the shotgun. (laughs) Exactly. It's an interesting dynamic. And I think a lot of photographers who who come from larger metropolitan areas uh, don't realize that this is actually a culture that photographers experience in rural America. So that's pretty fascinating to me. Um, yeah. But speaking of like pollination, um, my wife's actually really, really interested in, in getting into beekeeping. And I noticed mm-hmm. that you had some posts about that. Are you still doing mm-hmm. that? And like, what's that been like? Because obviously they're a big deal for pollination. Yeah. So we had hives for a really long time. Well, maybe 10 years. And then the state of Minnesota, the University of Minnesota asked if they could use our property to put hives on. So we sometimes have uh, up to 80 hives from them. And I just stopped doing day-to-day beekeeping when other people wanted to put their hives on our property. Um, So that's, it was, they they pay us in honey. So can't complain. (laughs) We get raw honey from some place in, I think it's Riverton, Wyoming, which for us is a pretty far drive. It's like a two and a half hour, three hour drive just to get honey because the local yeah. honey here, it's good, but it's so incredibly expensive. So instead of $350 for five gallons, we pay 250 and we travel. So I, have, I will probably never have to buy honey again. I've got my pantries full. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So for, we went, went through a dry spell once cause we get, you know, big old buckets of honey and usually it lasts us, we get three or four, it lasts us a year or whatever. But mm-hmm. for a, uh, about a month we were dry on it and we had to buy some from the store and it was like watered down and half as strong and it was just not as good. I was, I was actually blown away by that. If it doesn't start to like crystallize in a little while, then you're like, this isn't real honey. Like this is still yeah. liquid. What's what, what, 
did what voodoo did they do to this <laughs> to yeah. make it not crystallize? Yeah. You know, I'm always having to get the gallon out and kind of warm it up in a double boiler type situation, pan inside a pan, you mm-hmm. know, to get it back to pourable. Or you just, you know, glump it out with an ice cream scoop. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We've done that. We've, we've actually had to take like a big old knife, almost like a chisel. Cause we have five gallon buckets and you just kind of wedge it in there and pry it out. And we've broken knife handles doing it. (laughs) But if you've never experienced (laughs) crystallized honey, you're missing out. Yeah. I know. That's hilarious. So I guess related to bees, obviously we have flowers and that is a huge part of your portfolio. In fact, on your Instagram, it's almost exclusively plant life and flowers and still life in that regard. So I guess a question that might kind of spark more the creative side of this for the photographers listening and watching, uh, why botanical photography specifically? And what kind of drew you to that from a young age to now, I guess? Yeah. Well, I started out as a portrait photographer. I love photographing people, children, especially my own kids, especially. I liked the storytelling of, you know, doing birth stories or photographing events and all of those things are great, but they take you out of the house. And I didn't feel like I wanted to work weekends and nights uh, photographing people. And it wasn't that I didn't like photographing people, but I really always have been super cognizant of how does my day map out? Is this the life I want to lead? And I, people have asked me to do weddings for decades. And I'm like, nope, I'm not going to because I don't want to give up my weekends. And it's, it's selfish maybe, but I mean, I am not the main breadwinner in our house and I didn't want to be throwing everybody else's schedule into a, a loop because, you know, I had to do a wedding or an event or whatever. And so I love photographing things here and there. Uh, and I especially love photographing my children, but then they grew up. And so I was like, so what do I do with myself now? I didn't want to stop photography. And it was about that time that we started to get into the prairie conservation. And I started to realize that I could approach flowers and insects as subjects. You know, I could see a beautiful flower and I pretty much took what all the skills that I I did with people and I translated that to flowers in front of me. And it gave me the same kind of thrill, but not because it was a flower, but because of usually the amount of work that went into the growth of that flower. You know, I really believe in photographing things that you're invested in, things that are really important to you. And when we're putting our blood, sweat and tears into preserving the prairie, it's a natural thing to get super excited when you take a beautiful picture of the fruits of your labor. And that was what pivoted me into it hard. I realized that I appreciate this. This is a story I'm telling. It's an ongoing story. And as I started to get more into flower arranging and whatever, I started to grow more of those subjects. I didn't want to go to Costco or the grocery store and buy flowers. I wanted to know where they came from. And so I started to buy them locally and there's not a lot available locally. There's a couple of flower farms and I'm like, well, I want this specific flower. So I'm going to grow it. And all of a sudden I became this massive gardener that uh, much to my husband's dismay, keeps stealing chunks of grass from our yard and uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is fine. You know, he has his little oasis of grass now and I basically took everything else. And then I, you know, keep adding properties. We bought a two acre property this year that I'm working on turning into a prairie restoration uh, garden. Uh, so that's, it's, it's a passion and it's more than just taking pictures of something, you know, it's, it's, it, there's a connection there. So I think that, you know, if you can find that passion that that links you to something that, that makes it more than just a picture, then it has some longevity. It was I, I remember sitting down with some co 
you know, other photographers that I consider, you know, my peers and they're, I'm like, I think I'm moving away from people. And they're like, what, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to be a botanical photographer. And they're like, huh? <laughs> you know, it was, it, at first it was quite a jump, uh, but then now they see it. And, and truth be told, even when I was doing a lot of people photography, my portfolio was always filled with dead like leaves and buds and winter scenes of, of you know, flower, what's left of them <laughs> over the winter. Uh, we call it lovely dead crap on Instagram. And, and so it was, it's always been there, but it was usually like, I have nothing else to shoot. So I'm going to go walk around in the field and see what I can find. And uh, now it's very deliberate. That's fascinating. I think that's something that I could learn from, and maybe I can dive into this a little bit, but as a technical person, I've always been technically inclined and my creative side and my emotional side has always been something I've struggled with fostering. And I Mm -hmm. think each year I get better and I try more to put soul into my work. But I thought it was fascinating that you said if you take pictures of things you're invested in, that's important to you. And and I would have to say that that's something I need to work on. So maybe if you're willing to open up a little bit about that, you mentioned like you were invested in your kids and your family, and now you're invested in the prairie. I guess maybe my question would be, how could I foster that kind of mindset? How can I be more caring and more invested in my subjects. Cause I just, I honestly think light's really cool. And I find something that looks cool and I put it in the studio and I light it and it looks great, but like, what's the soul behind it? I think that's something I'm personally missing. So do you have advice for me on that? Well, I, I actually just want to latch onto something that you said, you really like the light and you like the technical. I mean, I did an entire year where a project was just light. Like I just, I love light. Like I'm passionate about light. And at the time it was natural light. It was, you know, light through branches or light onto my kitchen counter or just whatever. And it, it was a passion for the time and the season and it taught me a lot. So, I mean, I would start there actually because your technical love of it is the passion, you know, and how can you be creative with light? And then um, just be really aware of things that spark like excitement. If you find yourself staying up at night thinking like, oh, I have to shoot this, you know, like why? You know, really, I'm a big believer in reflection on excitement. Like, why am I? Because sometimes you can be excited about stuff that your 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 intellectual brain is like, this is dumb. Like, I shouldn't be very excited about this. But pay attention to that because that's where you can put your energy and that personality is going to come out through your work. And, and don't dismiss ideas. I think I hear more people dismiss ideas because they think it doesn't fit into a box and they they give up on a dream. Um, so I, I would just pay attention to what you like, especially outside of photography. Is there something that you love outside of photography? Maybe photograph that. I mean, only you can determine what that thing is. But for me, it was a really deliberate process of waking up one morning and realizing I really like plants. Is this normal? Like, I like, like, how do I, how do I justify this? But then I found a whole other community. Like there's an entire community on Instagram of flower farmers and people who garden. And I realized that those people take terrible pictures of their flowers. A lot of them, not some, some are very good, like the bigger flower farmers, but there's a lot of gardeners. I was at a Christmas party one year from her husband's work. And this lady loved her, her flowers that she grew and she whipped out her phone and every picture was an out of gamut blob of red you know like just this terrible like I felt bad I'm like I want to help this person take beautiful pictures of all the stuff that they love so much and that 
geared me into a new customer base. It geared me into a new avenue. And so never stop exploring outside of photography because your photography might unite with that at some point and spark a new avenue for you. That's actually really encouraging because I do tend to get a little bit, not depressed, but just like, man, my work is just so hollow. Like there's not much to it, but, but to, oh, I, say so. I think your work's amazing. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Um, but yeah, no, that, that I love that because when you don't silence the little voice inside your head, you know, that's, that's a, an indication that you should probably pursue it or at least try your best and see what comes of it. I really, I really think that's awesome. I, I would dive into that. We, we could talk about that alone all day because I think that's something deep in my soul that I've just wanted to explore forever and kind of get outside my own head on. But I guess what we can do just for now, and maybe we'll revisit uh, eventually, if not this podcast, maybe in the future, if that is something that you want to do, but could we pivot into talking about what got you into teaching? I know you mentioned it a little bit, but you had just Mm -hmm. said that you saw these people taking pictures of their flowers and they're just not good. And like, I could help them. Um, So what's your teaching journey been like? You have your online workshops and I know you talked about potentially doing more in-person workshops not too long ago. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's that, what's that been like for you? So yeah, there was kind of a workshop heyday, I would say over the last 12 years or so. And it's kind of COVID sort of You'd think it would have helped, but I think it kind of put the kibosh on a lot of momentum with it uh, because all of a sudden everybody was kind of home and everybody was do, you know, wanting to do other things than take online classes. <laughs> like they were just doing regular classes and regular work and people didn't want to be online for any other reason other than stuff they had to be. Uh, but I taught online and in person at conferences and online, you know, with like 30 students Um, learning from curriculum that I wrote for a good solid 12 years. And it was good. Um, I'm kind of, you know, I, I think I just burned out a little bit on it, you know, because there's, I, I did classes where it wasn't just me lecturing. I actually turned back assignments, you know, I would record critique via audio, um, for every student. And so there was just a lot of like, it was a, a nine to five kind of grind, you know, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, um, in addition to everything else I did, it just got to be a lot. And so when COVID hit, I just decided to uh, move on and try you know, try to do more, uh, kind of put all my classes into a bucket and said, here for $10 a month, you can explore to your heart's content. And, and now um, I, I did, I do teach occasionally for Sony, I haven't as much since COVID, but I used to teach all the time, you know, camera stores and events and things, which is fun. And it's kind of a nice diversion to get to travel and meet new people. Um, but now I'm I'm more wanting to bring some people to like my actual farm. Uh, it's a VRBO. It has six bedrooms, five bathrooms. Uh, you know, I want to bring a handful of people in and really help do the things that you can't get on YouTube. And I think that's another shift I saw. There were so many people teaching online, which is great. And I was doing great, making great money with it. But uh, now more and more people because of YouTube being incentivizing more information being put online, there isn't much you can't find there. You know, I used to teach things like Photoshop and Lightroom. Well, there's not much you can't find on YouTube <laughs> for free, you know? Yeah. And so the, the stuff that I feel like I want to teach is the stuff that people can't get just in a video, you know, where they're like 
what am I doing wrong? You know, here's my picture. This is what I'm staring at. Someone who physically can stand next to them and say, okay, we'll adjust the settings this way, or let's move your light this way, or let's take your light away and just, you know, meter for the, the natural light or whatever. Like people want that hand holding. And I think that that's kind of the direction I want to go, but less frequently, you know, not every month flying somewhere to teach, uh, maybe, you know, doing a round of, you know, six workshops in the summer at my place. Uh, and it's my house, you know, <laughs> I know the our area, I know where the airport is, I know all the idiosyncrasies, you know, I can give people good customer service because I live there. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, near, the, near there. Um, so that's kind of the direction I'm going if I want to teach. I feel like there's a lot of questions that are not answered online uh, that may not be difficult questions, but people want immediate feedback. And, and that's mm-hmm. what I think people are looking for. Yeah, that's a great point. So, so that's something that maybe we can talk about just a little bit more because um, I'm getting into the teaching realm too with Lumi mm-hmm. University and that's nice. kind of been my output this whole summer as I've been building a course. But what I've noticed is I have gotten a lot of people interested in personal workshops, but what I've struggled with myself with teaching is that I live in such a remote area that I feel like it's difficult to do that one-on-one with someone who actually wants to learn photography. Because when I meet people out here who want to learn photography, um, not that this is true for everyone, but there's very, very, very few people who actually want to learn it and understand it. And maybe it's just because I haven't tapped into the culture well enough yet. But what is your kind of system that you think you'd like to have? Obviously, you described it a bit with your Verbo and having them actually come out. But is that something you can charge enough for to make um, profit on? Or is it more just something that you want to serve people in and you you have them pay just enough to kind of cover expenses? Like, how does that look? Because I want to build a business myself that that thrives, but at the same time, I need to price properly for people and meet them where they're at. Right, so right. what have you done in that <laughs> regard? Because I have almost oh, no yeah. experience with this. Big yeah. time. Uh, so the, a couple major points. It's really important to have a venue that you can get some kind of guarantee. Like if you don't get enough students and you have to refund people that you're not going to get stuck with uh, this massive down payment that you lose, right? Um, there's there's a, a lot of issues. And I, I've known I had a lot of friends who do high, high-end workshops, like really expensive workshops and really expensive places. And the pressure to make that float is astronomical. I don't want to have that kind of pressure. And so for me, I, I, I'd be using a place I own. It's paid for. Uh, it was my family's homestead, my, my husband's family's homestead that they've had in the family since 1870. Uh, we bought it from auction from the state, but you know, through his military payment, we were able to pay down the mortgage to nothing. So, you know, if if I schedule something and, and I have to pull back on it because people get sick or something like COVID happens or whatever, uh, I'm not out a massive investment. You know, it's set up, it's ready to go and, and it's either empty or somebody's staying in it. You know, it's 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 a good situation for me. But if you're going to have, you know, in person, you know, is there somebody's farm or somebody's place that you can use that is reasonable and can work with you? Because there's nothing worse than I was supposed to teach in England on in March of 2020, <laughs> March of 2020 <laughs> which is when everything was starting to close down. And we were literally going to get on a plane the next day, my husband, my daughter and I to teach in a workshop in uh, in England and in Manchester and I just like, I don't think we should go. I think the world is closing down. I don't think we should go. 
And I had to fight with the airline company for two years to get refunded from those tickets, but they canceled the conference. They lost their down payment at this big event hall. Like it's just a a thing. So I think being really, um, frugal, like I, I, I don't, I hope it doesn't sound like name dropping. I don't want it to sound like that, but I I'm, um, friends with Brooke Shaden, who's a pretty popular fine art photographer. And she runs a workshop every year. And I asked her about it and she said, you know, I just keep it really frugal. Like I don't use these big venues, the fancy venues. We keep it super simple. A lot of local food, local, everything, um, really reasonable event spaces, like not super fancy, like you keep it to the level of the people where they're, they're, they feel like they're getting a great value and they understand what they're getting into. Some people want to spend $15,000 to take a workshop from somebody in New Zealand. I know that's not my demographic. <laughs> my <laughs> demographic are people who are moving up from their phone, you know? So it's okay. Like just to, to really budget and lay that all out and figure out how much is, is worth it to you, how much you can risk without, you know, if you lose that, would it break the bank for you? Uh, we always hope it works out well, but you never know. You know, you just kind of have to be able to play out some contingencies and be confident in whatever happens that you have. Yeah, that it'll work out one way or the other. Always be prepared to cancel. Sure. Okay. Gotcha. Best advice. <laughs> Bottom line, always be prepared. What are the what are the contingencies for canceling? You know, somebody gets sick or somebody shows up and there's some strange, you know, new disease, and, you know, or whatever. Like, like, do you have liability coverage? Do you have insurance? You know, all that. It's pain. <laughs> that's, yeah. No, that's good advice. One thing that I think might, you know, provide you and I some superpowers and people who live in rural areas is we do have a lower cost of living and there are venues that are pretty inexpensive or even a friend's barn or whatever that are decent with, Uh you know, concrete floor or whatever. Uh, Glamping or camping, you know, like, like I, I always thought that it would be fun to have, you know, a camping, they'll be more local, you know, people, or they have to come in and buy or rent a tent or something. But I mean, if you're, if your expectations are you're staying in a tent (laughs) then you're probably going to be okay. You know, like, like people know what to, as long as people know what to expect and know what they're paying for. Like I consider two things. They're either paying for the venue or they're paying for my education. How am I going to price those two separate things? If I can keep the accommodations and food at a level that's not astronomical, then I can feel comfortable charging what I think I'm worth for education. And, you know, making a budget is super important, which I stink at, but my husband's a banker and he's really good at it. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, that's really helpful. Well, thankfully my wife and I are are very frugal and we budget every month. So we're, we're not heavy spenders, but you know, they say it takes money to make money. And I think that that is true in some regard, but becoming more accessible day by day. So just trying to kind of match that's interesting to me. So cool. Yeah. And you can always start with like local people and, and local workshops. I've had quite a few of those where it's just a, a meet, meet and get together type thing at a national park or, or a county park or something. You know, you could start with something more low end and, you know, test the waters that way. And it just depends on what you're shooting too. People are passionate about shooting just about anything. Um, so finding out what people, what you like to teach about <laughs> and then what they want to shoot and see where they meet. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that's the cool thing about lighting is lighting applies for everything, but I think people are scared of it because it's, you know how like (laughs) we we see light, we're born seeing light and most of us anyway, and, and it's part of our everyday lives, but we don't really observe it. And so I think 
man, talking to you is really encouraging because I get so in my own head of like, man, people don't want to be in the studio all the time. But if it's a subject they're passionate about and I can bring my lighting expertise to it, I think that's really, that's encouraging to me. But <laughs> Well, and it's nice to have somebody around, especially with lighting that feels confident about it because that is one of the scary things for people. They're like, well, there's, you know, and it's not always easy. Like there are some companies that have lights that, I mean, I love Godox. So I'm not going to be wrong. Um, I'm sponsored by Westcott, <laughs> but I like, you know, there's sometimes I'm like trying to get a trigger to match a light and I'm like, what am I doing wrong? I bought this channel and that channel and like, oh, they're not, they're not marrying up. Like something's not right. And I'm like Googling. And, and so ha- that's the kind of thing that's great to have a person over your, your shoulder. Like it's not firing. Okay. Well, you know, we've got to switch this around. Like, Hey, I've been there. Can you tell? Yeah. <laughs> West that's pretty easy to like link up and everything, but um, there are definitely there's definitely a lot of hands-on work when it comes to lighting. I think I don't like overly cerebral teaching, you know, where it gets so in the weeds. Like, just show me how to make it look pretty like this. Here's here's a picture of what I want to do. Show me how to make this light do that, and then then work backwards. <laughs> right. Yeah. I guess. Something we can kind of talk about in moving into that regard of like lighting and reverse engineering is what's your creative process? Because the look of your work, if you guys haven't seen Caroline's work, hop into her Instagram, her website, she sells beautiful prints, but the still life work is very painterly and very masterful and it's very consistent. And so something that I would love to know is what is your creative process? How do you (laughs) set up your scenes. It looks pretty simple to me, but I know a lot of people might look at it and be like, holy crap, that looks absolutely beautiful, but they may not know it's actually not too unaccessible. So could you kind of talk about that? Absolutely. So I have to preface it by saying that I do learn lighting by reverse engineering, but I ran into too many problems because I was reverse engineering paintings and you can't do that because Mm. they use like, if you go to a museum and you look at a Vermeer or, you know, some random painter that has beautiful light, and you look at it, a lot of times it is not following the laws of light. There are creative, they, they take creative liberties with painting. And so I kept running into brick walls being like, why can't I light it to look like this? And then somebody kind person said, well, you know, this painting is really, that isn't how light behaves. <laughs> so you might want to try a different painting <laughs> as inspiration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I just started to kind of get to, and, and as hard as that was, I, I started to recognize what real light can do and what, you know, in very fanciful light can, can do. And, and I learned that keeping it simple is absolutely the way I like to be. I have friends who are super creative. They'll have five strobes going, you know, with gels and this and that. I'm not that way. I need to keep everything super simple. I don't like so many cogs going that something breaks. Uh, So I usually use one light. I use one modifier, one trigger on my camera. That's ultimately what I do over and over again. A lot of times uh, I started with food photography using strobes more uh, because I was working on a big food project in 2017 and everything kept melting. Like I couldn't, I couldn't use natural light. And so I started to use artificial light back in 2017. And it was at that point that I'm like, I need something I can work fast. And that was when I was in talks with Westcott. I had, I had known, um, Brandon, who works at Westcott for years from conferences. And I was like, what do I need? And he was like, well, just try one strobe. And so I ended up, you know, now I use the FJ400, which is a big, you know, 400 watt strobe. And then I usually use it bounced into a seven foot umbrella, just with the diffusion. So it's the light, 
on a stand facing the umbrella with diffusion fabric. So it's shooting, you know, in and bouncing through this big wall of diffusion. And that's it. I mean, it's, it's super simple. It's like a giant light or a giant window, basically giant window, uh, which is what I'm familiar with. I'm familiar with shooting at a window. So I just position that big, massive round, uh, soft bounce light, just like I would a window in a room. And I place my subject in relation to it, just like I would a window in a room. And then I usually just max off the power as high as the power can go on the strobe. And I turn my um, aperture to the, the smallest aperture, largest number that I possibly can and start there, <laughs> you know, um, and see if it works. Uh, and you, I, I do like the bigger the light source when you're using, when you're photographing really intricate flower arrangements, because there's a lot of dark, dark, deep shadows. Uh, it isn't like a person where you have a face right here, you know, and you're just lighting this one face or two faces. You have recessed shadows that you want to come forward and you have to shoot at F16 to F22 uh, to get even some semblance of some most of it in focus. And it's good to put a background behind that is uninteresting so that you're not like, like if I used ornate wallpaper or something, it would just compete because you've got everything in focus. Uh, I just want something sort of boring back there. And I use the inverse square law a lot, which is basically stick a large, huge, soft light source close to your subject and it wraps around it and is beautiful. And it's just very repetitive. Um, the hardest part for me is actually arranging the flowers. I much prefer shooting in situ and I will take not a seven foot up, um, diffusion umbrella, but maybe a 60 inch and sometimes maybe a 40 if I'm feeling super lazy at 24, that I just hold uh, like this, you know, and shoot with one handed. Uh, I like shooting in situ better almost because I'm not forced to have to create huge arrangements. I can just catch little vignettes of nature. That's the, the biggest thing for me. The lighting is just wham, bam, same thing every time. Every well, time. <laughs> there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. I think what's what is a testament to your consistency is that same approach with the lighting. The arrangements are different, um, but the lighting is what kind of glues your whole aesthetic together. So anyone who wants to learn how to light like Caroline, you can kind of all, all what I can do is I can create a little uh, diagram for the description that you gave and run it by you and make sure it's accurate and people can use that to learn. Um, but then, you know, take that and kind of make your own thing out of it, experiment and and um, have fun. That's really cool. Your, your aesthetic is gorgeous. Like I said, it's so painterly and um, how maybe something to kind of tag along to that. What's your editing style like? Cause it seems like most of it you catch in camera, but maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. So my editing really doesn't change either a whole lot. It, it does if I feel bored, but I, I don't, I, I don't get bored. I'm, I'm more interested in other things. So I just kind of stay consistent with that. Um, I usually bring them into Lightroom. I will use some of the new tools that they have in Lightroom to maybe darken a background or kind of diminish some craziness going on in the background cars, you know, if I'm outside or, you know, like the random bright green hose or something like that. You know, I, I try to temper the things that I miss when I'm shooting, which is often. And uh, in studio, I use less Lightroom because it's usually the light is what I need it to be. So it's very little. I do like dodging and burning. I'm a big fan of what used to be alien skin software and now is exposure software. There are a couple presets in there that I've used for literally probably, I think I, I think I 
saw 2011 or something. It was like the first time I was using some of those presets that I've, and mm-hmm. they update, you know, over the years and I still tweak them back down to what they used to, you know, what I remember. And uh, usually it's, it brings out shadows, like open shadows a little bit, adds a little bit more of a three-dimensional look. I'm not really sure what's under the hood there, but I use that at low opacity. I also do a, a painterly effect with the oil paint filter, although I have to say that I'm using it less now um, because one of my projects for 2024 is to print huge, like really big, like 40 by 60 or 60 by something. And I kind of want people to walk up to it and see every little detail. So the painterly aspect kind of mutes it down and gives it more of a a painterly effect. But I kind of want to explore every little vein and every little imperfection possibly. So people see it's a real flower. So probably this year, the focus will be more on dodging and burning and less on creating more of a painterly effect. We'll see. That's the direction I'm going. It kind of, you really have to think about what's the audience who's looking at the picture. Are they looking at a 10 by 10 printed with a frame on the wall or is it a mural, you know? And my approach is going to be different based on that. That's exciting. So you mentioned printing, obviously you sell prints. Is this Mm -hmm. something that you're hoping to sell like these large formats or are you hoping to get into a gallery or what's your goal with that? Cause that sounds... I love that. I love hyper detailed, super big prints. Like I, I, I would stare at a really high resolution print for hours. So what is your goal with printing that big? Um, I, you know, I'm still looking for a vendor. There are some places that do it, uh, through like print on demand, but it's not, it's more like a marketplace. So I'm looking for a vendor that will make wall murals that pass my muster. I can't tell you the graveyard of tested products I have in my house. Like my kids are always laughing because they're like, what's this now, mom? I'm just, well, another test product that didn't pass muster. Does somebody want it? You know? Uh, (laughs) So I like to do large format prints, but I want them to be somewhat affordable. And I think it was born out of going to so many hotels and seeing terrible murals on the walls of rooms. (laughs) You know, like... Mm, yeah. I mean, my husband and I for a romantic weekend or whatever, and all I'm doing is staring at the wall going, they could have done this so much better. <laughs> you know, you know what? If, if we ever get a chance to meet up and like we're at a conference or something, we should just make a quick like Instagram reel where we're walking around the motel and being like, well, what's wrong with this one? What's wrong with this one? That'd be so funny. <laughs> hotel art. That's another thing. It's, it's like, oh, wait, this could be so much better. You know, I don't know who this is and I hope I'm not criticizing a, you know, a famous person, but sometimes the art, I'm just, the, the, the photography in hotels is, is lacking. And I, I feel like there's a market for that. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's a, a goal of mine is, is large format prints. I haven't done it yet because it's, printing is, can be extremely expensive. So I'm looking for something that me, affordability meets quality. And mm-hmm. I went to a conference once and it wasn't photography. Uh, it was actually like big panels that were murals that you could hang kind of on curtain rods to add interest to a room. And I'd really like to do something like that. And they were pretty affordable, but it was more like William Morris prints from, you know, it was more like illustrated stuff. And I'd like to get that kind of quality with photography. So that's, that's a goal. I feel like large scale, large format kind of, I love to explore, you like macro, you know? So it's like exploring the beauty of something that you miss every day, I like to see it at huge scale so you can kind of appreciate what you're missing. 
That's awesome. Well, I look forward to seeing what you do with large printing next year. And that, that would be exciting. I'd love to have one of your artworks up in my studio as well. That'd be so cool. You mentioned something earlier that I kind of wanted to dive into and I wrote a note down, but you said that you talk about intimate landscapes. I've never mm-hmm. heard that before. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? So the, the term was coined by Elliot Porter, who is an author and photographer. And I believe, don't quote me, I don't know if it was the 60s, 70s or 80s. I have a really old book, you know, like a vintage book from him. And the idea of intimate landscape is it's not macro. It's not like right up on top of something at one to one. And it isn't pulled back where you're seeing the whole mountain. It's like somewhere on the mountain, you know, where you maybe use a 100 to 400 or use a 600 focal length lens a 600 millimeter lens and you, you zoom in, like you see the one face of a deer in, in the trees. If you're talking about a mountain scale and my scale, it might be like one square yard of the prairie and, you know, a few blossoms that are peeking through or something. It's, it's more punched in, but not macro. Uh, macro is, you know, true macro is one-to-one or closer where you're really getting up on top of something really close this is stepped back a little bit and it's, it's a unique place to be. But as far as the prairie goes, it was really important in my work. I felt like it was, it was where I landed as giving me purpose and kind of defining what I could do in my environment. I can't step back and take a picture because it's going to be a picture of the sky. Sky might be beautiful, but it's not majestic like it would be if there was a massive storm brewing, right? I mean, it's just, it is yeah. what it is. Uh, and getting super close is a viable thing that I absolutely love. I love my macro lens, uh, but intimate landscape forces me as a creator to think harder. What is the relationship between these three flowers? You know, what are these butterflies doing? It's more punched in. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge because I don't think most photographers really go there. Unless you live in a weird environment like me, where <laughs> it becomes the answer to your question. That's amazing. Actually, I'm so glad I asked that because you you had mentioned intimate landscape. I didn't know what you meant, but that is huge because I have noticed, like you mentioned, living on a prairie in the plains, uh, normal landscape focal lengths just don't seem to work. And I'm always reaching for my 70 to 200 or something longer than most people would. Like I see YouTubers and they're like, Oh, I love my 50. It's such a tight lens. I'm like, are you kidding? That's a super wide for me. So depending on (laughs) where you live, it's like when you're on the plains and ultra wide is insanely wide. Like you're seeing everything Mm -hmm. in the mountains are, if you have a mountain, we have the mountains, like I mentioned about 30 miles away, they become specs. And so to get a good landscape, I'm shooting at like 200 a lot. So that's, that's actually really cool. I'll have to dive more into intimate landscapes and see what I can do out here with that. Cause yeah. I've never heard that. Colors, before, textures, so. you know, it, it might be rocks mixed with moss, mixed with gravel, mixed with ants. I mean, it can be a lot of different things. It's looking for shapes and thinking smaller, you know? And yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Cause I've always either been ultra macro or like Mm -hmm. wide or just standard portrait. So that'll be, that'll be great for me. So I think something I'd like to talk about, we're kind of getting towards the end of our time. Um, Before I let you go, I really want to bring up a little bit more about like our home life a little bit. Um, I've got two, two girls, one's two and a half, one's five months, almost six months now. Oh my goodness. I love that age. Yeah, me too. It's been such (laughs) an amazing blessing. And, um, you know, just 
seeing them grow has been huge for me. And this year I've been really trying to build this education platform and it took a a lot of time away from them. And I kind of justified it in that, like I can, you know, if I take the time now to build something, then I'll be able to spend time with them. But I I realized after the summer that that's not really a good way to a sustainable way to work. And I think I could learn something from you as someone who's homeschooled, which I was homeschooled and, um, you know, I hope to homeschool my kids as well. How do you balance life with four kids and your work and how has parenting impacted your career and your life? Oh my gosh. Well, all I ever wanted to be when I was a you know, young woman was a mom. So I, I wasn't like a career driven person. I have a lot of faith and I kind of just knew the direction that I was supposed to go, you know, and um, I wanted to raise my kids. I wanted to be with them. And when my husband got activated after 9-11, it became priority number one. I always wanted to homeschool, but it became priority number one to give them some sense of stability when we were literally moving every six months. Um, it, my husband had a very interesting job description and we would move every six months um, at most a year. And it was a lot. And my kids needed that stability. So that was 100% what I did uh, at that time. I, I just didn't have time to do anything else. And I think that just being confident in your choices is super important. You know, this is this is where I'm, I'm going to bloom where I'm planted. And this is where I'm planted right now. As my career in photography grew, as I, you know, he, he didn't get out of the military, but he sort of didn't have as much busyness anymore. Uh, at that point, photography started to ramp up and it, you know, there was a bit of a crossover period. And I think that my initial, I did make some mistakes for sure. I think that when I am passionate about something, I go at it a thousand percent. And I think I should have been a little bit more balanced in the beginning, but I quickly recognized it probably after a year or two that I need to like juggle this better. <laughs> I need to do this less. And and I did start to pull back a little bit. Um, also, my kids were raised in the time when the internet became a thing. You know, like it wasn't a thing when I was growing up. And it, it wasn't even digital photography wasn't that good when my kids were very little. It was terrible. Um, so I, they were born in that transition. And I think I, I would have maybe laid better ground rules for myself about online time. Had I been aware, you know, 10 years later, what this would turn, the monster it would turn into. Um, So now I preach at my kids constantly, you know, balance and, you know, having a job where they're not necessarily tied to the computer all the time because you need to get outside, um, which they've been pretty good at. Um, Yeah. So I, I think just balance is always struggle, but being able to kind of have a 360 view and an aerial view of your life and be really not critical of yourself, but you get that like inkling in your stomach, like something's not right here and being confident and letting things go and making those hard choices. You know, I, I, I don't like to sacrifice one thing for another. So there, I could have been a lot more visual, like a lot more seen. I could be, I hesitate to use the word famous, but I could have taken up a lot of offers that would have propelled me in front of more people. And I chose not to. Was it the right choice? I think it was for me for sure, because I'm not just a singular person. I'm a wife and a mother too. And I needed to lay that 
all in front of me and pick out what's what are my priorities. And there was a kind of really hard time with some couple of my kids and I needed to be present and I needed to not be flying all over the world doing stuff. So there are trade-offs uh, for sure, but I have faith that I made the right decisions. And I, I do, I like balance. I'm a quiet person. I don't like to be the center of attention all the time. So it's totally fine by me. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I love talking to folks who are um, more life experienced than I am, who've kind of been there before, because, you know, as far as life goes, I feel like it feels like I've lived a long time, but at the same time, I'm still so young in everything that I know. <clears throat> and I try to be very balanced and I try to be very calculated. But at the same time, just like you, I'm so driven and so passionate that I don't even realize I'll skip lunch and I'll be eating, you know, at midnight, not realizing that, you know, time is passing by and also time with my family is passing by. So just trying to be more aware of that and, and hearing that story from you is, is definitely encouraging for me as well. Um, you mentioned you have a lot of faith as well. Is, is your faith, can you tell us about what you believe and how that's informed your life as well? Because I do feel like that is a core of who we are. We are people who are created for a purpose. So I'm just yes. curious, what's that been like for you? You hit the nail on the head. <laughs> you, hit, you hit the nail on the head right there. I have, so I am a, I'm a Christian. I've gone to church my whole life. Um, I've been to a lot of different uh, denominations and things because we move so often. And I'm just always looking to find out who God wants me to connect with in this new city or this new military base or this new whatever. And he's never failed to guide me to friends who will push me harder and, and, and hold me accountable, you know, um, and make sure that I'm like lining things up. There's a lot of, in the photography industry and in any, any visual industry, there's a lot of pressure to be famous, to climb up the ladder, to be seen, to get the recognition. And in the end, I have to ask myself, is this what God wants me to be doing? You know, is this, is this opportunity something he wants or is this something that the enemy is coming along to give me to, to stroke my ego and wreck something else in my life? <laughs> um, and so that is huge. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier that I like to structure my day and know what my day looks like. I, d I didn't want my kids to always see my suitcase, you know, and I was always leaving, you know, I, I, I didn't want that to be their memory of me. And so I said no to things. And I believe we all were put here for a purpose and that God has a plan for each of us. And we can, you know, we can agree to that plan and sit and wait in his presence and ask, you know, what do you want from me? <laughs> Where do you want me? Uh, or we can just keep pushing forward with, you know, our personal ambitions. And sometimes those two paths are not aligned. So that's, any mistakes I made in my life was usually when I wasn't waiting on God to give me a solid answer, you know, and pushing forward with the wrong motivations. It never pans out well. The best things that have ever happened to me in my life have been through no work of my own. I hate to, it isn't luck. It was God saying, okay, this is an opportunity for you that I want you to do. <laughs> you know, my husband, I didn't say husband, you know, Dan, go sell your motorcycle and give me money to buy a camera. Like that wasn't, that wasn't anything to do with me. He felt led to do that. And, and, you know, when I started teaching with Sony, they found me, I didn't like clamor at their door. You know, it just was 
one series of events. I tested a bunch of camera systems, ended up with Sony because I like their ISO capability. Uh, and, and it wasn't like the more that I interject my will into something, the worse it goes. Like I just need to let go, you know, I always say let go and let God, but really it is about waiting and trusting that, you know, things are going to work out like he wants. And yeah, that's, that's about it. I, I, my husband always says, whenever you try to force something, it doesn't go well. And it's absolutely true in my entire life. Yeah. I, I relate to that a lot. Um, something that I could be vulnerable about too, is this whole journey of me trying to start this business. It's, it's very difficult to just like you balance your family life with work life and you have to try to separate those. It's, difficult with faith because faith has to be integral to every part of your life. And if you start to compromise on one part of it, it will kind of lead you down a destructive path. And that's been my experience. And this year I've, I poured my heart and soul into building my first course and putting out this program. And it seems like traction has kind of just slowed down. And I'm, I'm just trying to humble myself and be like, this isn't my goal that I need to be striving for. I need to be striving for what does God have for me and what do I need to be doing to seek his will? And I think he's really hit me in this last couple of months that that is focusing more on my family, focusing more on my leadership and just my honesty and my ability to be the husband that he wants me to be. And that needs to be number one currently. And yeah. so I think, you know, just, just having that humility to say, it's not my plan. It's, it's God's is huge because, you know, the, the difficulty with being human is we have this desire to create and, you know, God created and we're built after his image and he is a creator. And so that's something that I align with and I'm like so driven to do, but if I create for my own purposes and my own desires above his, then I've always, every time seen problems and I've always run into brick walls and I've always become kind of this unhumble snotty kind of I'm a better lighter than anyone else kind of photographer and that mindset <laughs> has been a lot for me to deal with so I I completely understand where you're talking coming from yeah and the definition of success too is going to be different from a faith perspective you know like having enough versus being like I've seen a lot of people who make a ton of money with photography and are very unhappy people, you know? Um, and I've seen people who make just enough that they're content and they're joyful, you know? And my um, passage for this year was seek ye first the kingdom of God. Like I was praying about what I was supposed to do and I'm supposed to put my priorities in order. And as long as I do that, then I can be confident that things are going to be smoother, at least I'll be more confident in my decisions. Being in a creative industry, it's just hard in general because it's so personal to us. And I think it's yeah. that way if you're an architect or if you're a, you know, anybody who does something in the creative realm is prone to obsession, maybe. Yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> for sure. So my my last big question for you, just for me personally, of wanting to glean as much as I can from someone who has more experiences. What's your advice for a long marriage? Um, my parents have been married for 32 years and you've been married, what, 26? Is that right? So yeah, what is your secret, 27? What's your secret sauce 
because I have only been married for seven and I'd like to make um, it another 20. Well, congratulations. That's awesome. So the, the number one thing, and this is something my husband taught me, is knowing when to apologize and mean it and to live a life not live a life of apology because that's not right. But I mean, if you're, if you're getting your dander up, if you're being unreasonable or if you're like, I tend to be more hot headed. My husband tends to be more laid back, like understand that and to repent, you know, it goes back to faith, you know, like I was really like, I may have thought I was right about this, but I did not approach it the right way, you know, and I'm sorry. My husband often will, he's a great apologizer. And sometimes I think he apologizes when he shouldn't because he don't think he really means it. <laughs> um, but um, he taught me that that is like the fastest way to diffuse things. And, you know, and also to have a time when you communicate uninterrupted. So for my husband and I, that's the hot tub. Like we, even in the dead of winter, like nobody's wearing a bathing suit. Like I wear like leggings and a t-shirt because I don't, it's freezing. Like it will be 20 yeah. below and we'll still go in the hot tub. Um, <laughs> but I like it because he's captive. Like I'm captive. Like there's no phones, there's no distractions, there's no screens. It's just us. And having that time where you're not half thinking about something else is really important. So being apologetic right away, you know, not letting the sun go down on your anger is one that people, you know, swear by. And I do too. Like, don't go to men mad. I can be as mad as anything, but you know, if he grabs my hand, I just melt and I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever I said, I'm sorry. And yeah. yeah, So uninterrupted time together and just humbling yourself, I guess, both of you doing it. It doesn't work if one person does it, but if you're both committed to understanding your own weaknesses and acknowledging that they exist and working through that, I think pride is a huge problem. You know, as long as you think I'm always right, then you're never going to get anywhere because as much as I'd like to be perfect, I know I'm not. (laughs) And the people you love the most are the ones that see the most barbs from you because you're the most comfortable with them. So. Yeah, that's so true. So true. Yeah. Well, that's, that's great advice for me. And I I strive to implement that and we'll do better. My wife and I do fairly well, but there's still a lot of young uh, fire in us that we need to kind of tame in those situations. So thank you for that. Um, (laughs) But moving into the lightning round, this is the part where I just ask any kind of random question. Give me the first answer off the top of your head. We'll blast through those and then we'll kind of wrap up. So uh, first question I have is who's your Mount Rushmore of artists, like the top four? Okay. Well, the number one is no one that no one's ever heard of and her name's Tammy Bone. And she, I don't even know if she's on Instagram anymore. So I'll leave it at that. You can Google her original work. She was just really interesting to me. And then just the classic artists like Vermeer, Rembrandt, and some more lesser known ones like David Knight Ridgely, or is it David Ridgely Knight? Don't quote, I'm not sure which one it is, but there, there's just famous paintings I got enamored with at museums and that I wanted to know how they lit it, so to speak, when they were painting. And so, yeah, painters mostly. The the classic uh, master's the, painters. The, the emotional connection, what makes people over generations connected to somebody's work, you know, and it's the light usually probably not the subject. It's, it's the light that makes you go, that's amazing. You know? Gotcha. Cool. Mm -hmm. Next question is, are you an early bird or a night owl? 
Night owl. Working on trying to switch that, but that's unfortunately been my <laughs> modus operandi since high school. So I've been, and then Sam in the same boat. I spent all of the last two summers waking up at five thirty in the morning, and I still stay up till midnight. Yeah, I can't fix it. Um, would you prefer a beach vacation or a mountain retreat? If I had to pick between those two mountains, but I'm actually cool with staying home. <laughs> I think I'm more of a homebody. Uh, I, you know, I'm content. Nice. Uh, cats or dogs? Both. I, I have cats. They're hilarious. They're hilarious. They, they, they're just funny, but I really missed my dog. My dog Val died a couple years ago and I haven't been able to pull the trigger and get another one. Cause I just don't want to go over that. So I, both, I would say, but I have, I have three cats right yeah. now. <laughs> You have cats, but dogs have a special place to that yeah, specific dog, I, yeah. I understand that. Uh, sweet or savory food? Sweet. Okay. No doubt. Uh, what's, what's your favorite season? You know, I would have said fall any other time up until this very second, but I'm actually winter is growing on me. As miserable and awful and horrible as it is, it's filled with memories of being cozy and hanging out with people I love and sitting in the hot tub in 20 below weather and sparkle lights at the holidays. And yeah, I think winter is growing on me. I I am in the same boat. Actually, I've always been kind of a spring summer person, but just this Mm -hmm. year, kind of similar to you, I'm really enjoying the festive. Maybe it's just because I have young kids now, but fall and getting into the holiday season is exciting me. So I I feel you there. So when you've had like busy times that you can think of in the past or, or after work, when you come home, how do you unwind after a long day? hot tub <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't know i like i just there's just something about that but in the summer it's you know building a campfire if we're out you know if it's summer it's a hot campfire if it's if it's winter it's just the fireplace you know sitting around a crackling fire is probably my favorite thing with a hot cup of tea and people that i like a cat on my lap like just coziness nice apologizing in the hot tub yeah <laughs> um what is your favorite movie or series of all time okay so this is (laughs) uh we love this 2005 movie pride and prejudice like um it's the one with Keira knightley she was like 17 when it was made and uh we my husband and i have literally seen it like 40 times it's it's just the movie we put on in the background we love the soundtrack the humor is cute. It's it's just a nice story. We, I love the Jane Austen novels. I've read them out loud to my kids. Uh, I like her sense of humor. Um, but yeah, it's probably any Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen, Emma, Sense and Sensibility, all those series, they make you think. The language can be hard sometimes, but it's like, I always tell my kids, if you're mad at somebody, if you can, if you can articulate it like Jane Austen would, instead of using like nasty words, then you have won the lottery. Like <laughs> she could just totally someone down in the most eloquent way. And it's like, there's never a four letter word in the whole book. You know, like it was just, I don't know that the level of communication always amazes me. So all of those old movies, the Edwardian shows. Gotcha. I don't think I've ever seen any of those. And my wife's probably been begging me to watch him. So we'll see if I can make <laughs> my that happen. <laughs> like, like, my husband's like a total dude. Like he's wanting to watch the next, you know, whatever bloody something, you know, whatever, you know, like the, the male mindset, but he loves those movies. Like they're so, 
they just feel good and they flow well and they just make you feel good. So yeah, as I get older <clears throat> and as I, you know, my kids grow, I'm becoming a lot more of a softy and I've always been kind of a softy person, but especially, um, just being willing to kind of cry a little has been something I'm noticing more in my life. So I'll, I'll yeah. try that out. Two <laughs> <laughs> um, little girls, you said two girls, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, and we're, we're hoping to have more, but my wife refuses to have three kids because she doesn't want a middle child. So she wants to go for four. And if I, we end up with four girls, I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, we have three sons and a, and three sons. And then I had a daughter. So there was a lot of male energy in our house for a while. And then I was like, oh, we got a girl. And now <laughs> she was more energy than all of them. So. <laughs> Um, what's your top two favorite colors, your favorite color combination? So I love, so it could be that I have, I've red hair. So I love seventies colors, like, like an old kitchen from the seventies, like olive green and harvest gold. But then on the flip side, there's nothing I like more than like hot pink flowers against a brilliant blue sky with puffy white clouds. Like they're totally the opposite. Like one's kind of retro and one's just bright and garish, but they both make me happy. So go figure. That's fair. That's fair. Do you have any hidden or surprising talents? <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't think I knew. <laughs> I sang a lot when I was younger, but I can't anymore. After COVID, I, I totally lost my voice. I got COVID like three or four times. And, um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I actually met my husband singing in a choir, <laughs> like a traveling choir. Like we were on a tour <laughs> and that's how I met him. He was in the audience. So that we see. Oh, like, wow. Yeah. That's pretty mm-hmm. funny. So no hidden talents that you know of your hidden talent is something that's hidden to yourself, but you'll probably think of something at some point. <laughs> yeah, um, if you could capture any moment in history, what would it be? So I, I would say any one of Jesus's miracles, I just, just to be in the first century and, you know, there's so much about history that we don't know from seeing, you know, we've only read about it. And I would like to just step into the first century and people are the same regardless. Like I think if you go to 3000 BC, they're the same. People are still people, but I'd like to capture an era that's completely removed from all media. (laughs) Like there's no, there's, there's no physical, you know, anything other than illustration, maybe just, just to see. Yeah. Yeah, the we have, you know, concrete evidence and all historians agree that Jesus lived and died and you know like to to see him and to capture any one of those miracles would be insane like water turning to wine. I don't know how you'd capture that or if you'd be prepared ahead of time, you're time traveling, you know mm-hmm. where it's going to be and you set up ahead of time and then poof and then <laughs> that right. Crazy. Yeah, or just to see the, the look on people's faces or um you know just to yeah, yeah, yeah. I've always wanted to be a fly on the wall in in that, you know. And yeah, yeah, just any that'd be anyone, yeah. <laughs> un- unimaginably cool, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so finally, the very very last question I just want to kind of end off on is: What's one piece of advice that you would have for anyone listening to this podcast who admires your work? I would say that they should try it on for size. 
so I, here's my philosophy. I am a big believer in not dismissing what you're interested in. Like there's a lot of kind of little ballet dancing around like, oh, I do, you know, tiptoeing around uh, the idea of copying. You know, people get very squeamish when people talk about copying. People get very angry. And I'm like, you know what? If, if somebody sees my work and they want to buy a strobe and they want to buy an umbrella and they want to go grow flowers or pick flowers, and they want to do, then do it. Like, I am not a person who believes in getting in the way of somebody else's interest at all. And I think a lot of people steer clear of things because they're like, well, that person's already doing it. And I think, you know, one person said, well, I don't want to photograph flowers because, you know, you photograph flowers. And I said, well, that's silly because nobody said, I mean, I love this person, but nobody would look at a person and say, well, I don't want to photograph people because a lot of people photograph people, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. like there's no limit. Like it's not, nobody has the corner market on any one thing. And Unlike some businesses where people can just come and, you know, copy and paste and steal your work. Like if you're a writer and someone is literally plagiarizing you, that's, that's a problem. But the amount of work that goes into what I do is so much that if somebody's wanting to invest and try all of that, then all the more power to you. Go ahead. I want you to, because it may be your calling, you might be a, a, a person who's going to be somebody that I can look up to someday and, and learn something new from. So I, I would say if you're interested in someone's work, ask yourself why, because there's two avenues. You're either interested in their work because you just appreciate who they are, or you're interested in their work because it's something that you yourself should be doing. And you could be one of those two things. And I think it's it's sad to dismiss it if it's something that you really should be doing, you know, and I, I don't want it to, I don't want to discourage anybody. If you are passionate, a lot of people I'm around, a lot of flower farmers, a lot of people who work with prairie conservation, all these people are passionate about these plants. So why wouldn't they want to photograph them? You know, go ahead. <laughs> I'll teach you how. That's awesome. I love that. And something I've noticed is when you do try to copy someone's work, you start to get creative juices flowing and it ends up being mm-hmm. different anyway. And so mm-hmm. there's really no shame unless you are purposefully trying to rip their stuff intentionally. Um, you know, that's a different story, but you know, that's just not how art works. And so that's really, really cool. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Well, thank you for hopping on. I just want to let you have one more say, I know you don't like to hawk your stuff, your stuff a lot, but can you tell people <laughs> where to find you a bit about your community group. Um, let us know where people can look you up and see what you're all about. Absolutely. So I have my main website is carolinejensen.com. It's just sort of a landing page for all the different things I do. Art I sell. My community is actually going through a name rebrand at the beginning of the year um, where it's just going to be my name. I'm moving my URL over there, I believe. So carolinejensen.com will be my community starting uh, in January, I believe. But right now it is creativephotographynetwork.com. So depending on when you hear this, um, it could be one of those two things. And it's just a very informal 
place where people can come and ask questions. A lot of times people just want access to a person who has the answers to a question that they have. And so there are people who do 365 projects on there. There are people who just pop on when they have a question. It's really just a private place. You have to join. It's free. Uh, There's a paid area for 10 bucks a month if you want to learn some of the things, uh, the materials I've created, but it's not mandatory. Uh, And yeah, it's it's just a kind of a curated place with no ads, no algorithm, nobody trying to steal your information, (laughs) you know, safe place to come and hang out. Um, Very laid back. I can attest to the, how fun the environment is on your community. Cause I, you did invite me to it uh, a little while ago and it's very nice, very laid back. So highly recommend checking that out. And of course you can find uh, Caroline on Instagram as well. As oh yes. Caroline, Caroline J. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's just how early really... I got an Instagram. <laughs> yeah. My, that's awesome. Caroline well, J. <laughs> My my name is pretty unique, so I got pretty lucky. I have my name everywhere, but uh, that's pretty impressive to have a name as common as yours booked like that. It's so cool. Um, but like like I said, with everything, we will have it all linked in the show notes. So definitely check it all out to get to know Caroline. She's just a wonderfully kind person. And I'm extremely thankful that you have, uh, again, joined us on the podcast. But that's about it. So uh, thank you again. And um, we'll catch you later. Thank you, everyone. All right, man, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Caroline really just has so much wisdom to offer. I didn't expect us to go as deep as we did into her personal life and her faith, but at the same time, I even gathered just tons of information on her creative side and the lighting side and compositional stuff. And it was just incredible to be able to glean from her wisdom and from her experience. And I hope that you gathered a lot from this episode as well. And before I let you go, I just wanted to remind you that I've got a lot of amazing free resources sources for you over at lumauniversity.com. You can get my proven portrait lighting techniques e-guide that has all of the most essential lighting techniques that you need to learn how to light portraits well that also translates to every other form of photography. You'll also get access to some free lessons that are incredibly helpful based on my most popular tutorials. They go much more in depth than anything that I post on YouTube and anywhere else publicly, so definitely take advantage of that. And that's about it. Be sure to follow or subscribe to this podcast wherever you are. You can watch it for free on YouTube as well. And um, yeah, that's about it. Thank you so much for checking in. I will see you in the next episode.